the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are back in the book of Revelation here today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Join us as we are encouraged to trust in the Word of God. When it comes to war, when it comes to battles, we are accustomed to and used to seeing all kinds of warfare, all kinds of weaponry. But when it comes to the battles that we see spiritually and the end of all things here in Revelation, chapter 19 gives us the greatest weapon of all, the all-conquering Word of God. Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church right here in San Jose. Spend time with us today and grow in Christ as we once again turn our attention to Revelation chapter 19. Here's Pastor Gary. We come to the last half of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And remember, I pointed out last week that the 19th chapter flows out of verse 20 of the 18th chapter. And the 18th chapter is on the fall of Babylon, or if you remember, the Roman Empire. And of course, any other civilization that builds itself on the principle of war against God. And the Christian's responsibility in such a culture is, number one, in verse 4, to live separate lives from the morals and lifestyles and goals of that ungodly culture. And secondly, in verse 20, to rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So we're not to be bloodthirsty in this. This is actually a holy rejoicing. We grieve over people's pain. But nevertheless, we rejoice when God vindicates himself in judging enemy cultures, and he removes them out of the way for the advance of his kingdom. Now, the 19th chapter of Revelation begins with some hallelujah choruses in verses 1 through 10, and they are full of joy and rejoicing. And the first hallelujah chorus is in verses 1 through 2, and that is an outburst of praise for God's righteousness and faithfulness, and for bringing about the salvation of the church and the destruction of the church's enemies. In the second hallelujah chorus, in verses 3 through 5, we see the elders as the ones with the insight and the courage to lead the church in the singing of God's praises over the collapse of a culture that still exists with Caesar in charge. And they are especially praising God for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and covenant curses, particularly one that says, I will curse those who curse you, which is, of course, covenant language. 
Then in verses 6 through 10, we see the third hallelujah chorus, and we see God being praised for three things. One, he is being praised because he has manifested his glory in redemptive judgment. Now, this redemptive judgment is not redemption as far as alien cultures are concerned, but judgment, when it falls upon enemy cultures, is redemptive and liberating for the church. And then the second thing Almighty God is praised for in that third hallelujah chorus is that he has already begun to reign. It's not some kind of future event that we need to wait for a while Satan, while Satan reigns, but the Almighty God reigns right now in Christ. And then in the last chorus, we saw that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Last week, I went into a little bit of detail about how the marriage supper of the Lamb is symbolized in the Lord's Supper. That the Lord's Supper is a symbol of the marriage between the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it celebrates our union with him. And it is a wonderful way that, the God, has, that God has provided for us to rejoice that the church will be victorious and that alien, ungodly societies will be defeated. Underlying this symbolism are two words. You cannot have a married supper of the Lamb, and you cannot have the Lord's Supper without two other things, and that is communion and community. Before there can be a community of people, experiencing oneness and unity with one another. There has to be real communion and a shared faith between those people. And that's important to remember, not just for the Lord's Supper, but for remedying all of the problems we have as a nation today. This country is united in a community. A community that shares a common communion in a faith which is anti-Christian humanism. And that's why the liberals basically get along. I mean, they have their feuds, not because there's necessarily some great conspiracy, but they have this community among them because they share a common faith in man, a common communion in man. Not God. And we're not going to get anywhere in rebuilding a Christian community in this country until we go back and try to rebuild communion in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration of the community and communion we have in Christ that is symbolized every week when we take the Lord's Supper. Now, before I exegete this passage, I want to make sure, once again, that you understand this is not talking about the second coming. It's not talking about a time when heaven opens up at the end of the world, which will happen. But the phrase in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, has a variety of meanings in the Bible, and it is used in several different places. In fact, can you think of some of the places when... It talks about the heavens opening up and it's referring, not referring to the second coming. How about Jacob's ladder 
in Genesis 28, 10 through 19. Or in 1 John 1, 51 at Jesus' baptism, when you have a similar statement, when the dove descends upon Christ. And then at Stephen's sermon, when he was stoned for bearing testimony to Christ. And Peter, when the heavens opened and a sheet came down, teaching Peter that he needed to universally offer the gospel to all people, regardless of nationality or race, whether Jew or Gentile. It has a lot of representation in the Bible. In this particular chapter, however, we know it's not talking about the second coming, because when the heavens open, we see Christ, but he is ready for war. It's not like the second coming when everything is already consummated. The heavens opening up here is a description of this mighty victor going through history and destroying his enemies. Now let's talk about this all-conquering word. There are three weapons that God uses to destroy his enemies in history before the second coming of Christ. The first weapon is providence. That is what this story of all the judgment is about, of God using the various resources of creation to destroy the great Babylon, the great harlot. Then there is his word and his spirit. God not only destroys nations and peoples against him by his providence, literally destroying them, but he also destroys them by his word and by his spirit. And that is refuting their worldviews, showing the stupidity of those views, converting them even, disillusioning them, confusing them, and causing them to believe a lie. Let's look at some Old Testament passage to help us understand this New Testament passage in Revelation 19 and about this all-conquering word. First of all, let's start with the 11th chapter of Isaiah. We have a prophecy here about the Messiah. And I want you to notice what he accomplishes and how he accomplishes it. A lot of people would refer to this as the second coming. But there's not a word of the second coming in here. You can't just assert something that's not in the text, beloved. You want to be true to the text. And this is about the accomplishments of Christ beginning with his birth and his baptism. Isaiah 11 verse 1. Then a shoot or a sprout will spring from the stem of Jesse. So you have here a sprout. Little boys are called a sprout once in a while, right? And this is the same idea here. The great Davidic monarchy has been cut down. Everyone thinks it is dead. And a sprout starts to grow. And that is the son of Jesse, who was the father of David. And this sprout is, of course, Jesus Christ. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And this, of course, took place at his baptism. So here are the accomplishments of Christ with his first coming, not his second coming. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So in describing his character here, he says that the way he is going to destroy the wicked is by what comes out of his mouth, the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. His word, in other words, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And notice the effect of the word that comes from the lips of Christ. Verse 6. This is amazing. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw with the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the serpent's den. They will not hurt or destroy any in, in, in all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let me read that again. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, who will stand as a signal as, or as a standard for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. So here it says, as a result of the word, the spirit-anointed Christ will have the effect of changing life on this planet dramatically, so that there will be in part the restoration of Edenic conditions. And down at the end of verse 9, the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And all of the various nations of the world will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. So here you have a prophecy that someday the Messiah is going to come, Slay his enemies by what comes out of his mouth. And as a result of slaying his enemies, there will be a transforming effect on the life of this world. And along with it, the conversion of many nations of the world to Christ. Now turn to the 44th chapter of Isaiah. And we'll see a similar prophecy. Isaiah 44. And I'll begin in verse 24. I'm trying to show you here the great conquering Christ in the 19th chapter and how he just destroyed his enemies simply by what comes out of his mouth. And this is all in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 44, 24 through 26. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, 
I, the Lord, and the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. So here again, it is the word that comes out of the mouth of the servant of God And throughout the book of Isaiah, not only is Israel, but particularly the Messiah, called the suffering servant. So here you see the word that comes out of the servant's mouth is that which will refute the omens and the diviners and the religious and the philosophic and all of the rest who are opposed to Christ. So the instruments that God uses to destroy his enemies... And the enemies of his church are, number one, providence in his over-judgment of his enemies, actually destroying them. And second of all, by the word or rod that comes out of the Lord's mouth that will refute and confuse the enemies of God. Now, with that as a background, let's look at this beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with verse 11. But actually, before we do that, let's turn to Revelation 1. The book of Revelation begins and ends with these glorious pictures of the exalted, reigning, triumphant Christ. There's a lot of imagery, as you can imagine. So let's start with verse 12 of chapter 1. And I will read verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." So, here the book of Revelation begins with the glorious picture of the reigning, majestic, governing, victorious, conquering Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to the 19th chapter, and you'll see many similarities to Revelation 1. Notice, for instance, how Christ is introduced in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Now, if you would turn to Revelation 6. And we've seen this imagery before when God went to unseal the book. And various covenantal curses began to come out of the book of history that Christ has opened. Notice how it begins in chapter 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a law, and a crown was given to him, and he went out 
conquering and to conquer. So there at the beginning of Revelation and at the end, Christ is seen as advancing as a conqueror riding a white horse. Now, what is amazing to me is that virtually everyone I know, whatever their viewpoint, interprets verse 11 as applying to Jesus. But many of the dispensationalists, when they come to this chapter of Revelation, say that the person who rides on the white horse in verse 11 is the Antichrist. And if that is what it means, trying to interpret Scripture with Scripture is basically impossible. You have a white horse, and someone is sitting on it at the beginning. And you have a white horse and someone is riding on it at the end. At the end, he is, he is obviously a conqueror. And the person on the white horse at the beginning in Revelation 6 cannot be the Antichrist. Because what it says in Greek is that he is involved in nothing but conquest, conquering and to conquer. That cannot be said about anyone beloved but the Lord Jesus Christ. So here you see in Revelation 6, Christ involved in nothing but conquests, never defeat. And now we come and we see him, this great conqueror in chapter 19, the 11th verse. And what is he called? Behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And that's another way of saying that the person who's riding this white horse is God incarnate. Look at verse 2 of the same chapter, beginning with the last part of verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot, etc. So now here, the perfections of God are used to describe the person sitting upon this white horse, waging war with the enemies of the church. This, of course, again, is God incarnate. And there is no way that this person can ever lose. Verse 12, and his eyes are a flame of fire. Now, we saw that in Revelation chapter 1. But where did Revelation 1 and Revelation 19 get this idea that Christ's eyes are flames of fire? Well, they got it from the description of the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, you have this great figure in chapter 7 called the Son of Man who ascends to the throne of God. And God gives him an international, eternal kingdom. And then in the 10th chapter of Daniel, the 6th verse, it says, and his eyes are like flaming torches. So when you come to the 1st and 19th chapters of Revelation, and you see this mighty Jesus with flaming eyes, that is John's way of letting you know this is the almighty Son of Man, pictured in the book of Daniel, that has an international, eternal kingdom 
that shall overcome all kingdoms. Verse 12. And on his head were many diadems or wreaths of victory, of triumph. And he has a name written on him. Now that's an interesting phrase. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Now, what do you think those words are getting at? He has a name that no one knows except himself. Well, let me tell you what that means simply, and then I'm going to show you a verse that, it, that may be an allusion to this. No one knows God unless he reveals himself to them. This is the bottom line here. He has a name, but no one knows his name. No one knows what he's like. No one knows what his will is unless he, in his sovereignty, chooses to reveal it. All right, that's what is being, I believe, said here. But now let me remind you of Matthew eleven twenty-seven and 28. This is about Jesus himself. It says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org. And if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. <music>